Hello, and welcome to the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. This episode, I will be discussing the text known as the Assumption of Moses, or the Testament of Moses. This text, or texts, are certainly interesting, but perhaps even more interesting is the matter of the title and number of the works themselves. Both the title Testament of Moses and the title Assumption of Moses, assumption being essentially synonymous with the word ascension, are found mentioned throughout early Christian literature, presumably as separate works. However, only one substantive portion of one of these texts has survived. There is some debate as to which of the two works our text represents, as it matches up in some ways to the descriptions found for both. There are some who say it is the assumption, others who say there never really were two works and both titles refer to this work, or that one of them refers to something like Jubilees, and still others who argue that there were once two separate works later edited into a single work, which is present in our text. What seems to be the majority opinion, however, is that this text is the testament, but much of the narrative of the now lost assumption can be deciphered from the many quotations and reference to it found throughout early Christian literature. Hereafter, I will refer to the long text that survives as the testament and the lost narrative as the assumption. These confusing and often conflicting details about the names, content, and length of parabiblical works recorded in antiquity are far from unique to this text, and for that reason it is often hard to discern which of the books that we have match up to which of the ancient names or details of these books that have been lost to time. Almost certainly the Testament, and most probably also the Assumption, were composed by Jews. The Testament was at one point in Greek, but was likely originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic, and is generally dated to the first few centuries BCE, although a more precise date is difficult to discern. It was probably written by a member of some Anochic movement, although it shows some Pharisaic tendencies as well. As for the assumption, it is hard to make determinations as the text is lost. Almost certainly, however, it was written in Greek, if not Hebrew or Aramaic, and it must precede its reference in the New Testament epistle of Jude which scholars generally date to the beginning of the 2nd century CE, making this work likely from the 1st century CE or earlier. The Testament begins with an introduction identifying the text as a speech made by Moshe, Moses, to Yoshua, Joshua, when Moshe appointed Yoshua leader of Israel before his death, an incident from the narrative in Dvarim, Deuteronomy. Moshe tells Yoshua that he must lead the Israelites justly to continue creation's purpose, as Moshe himself is close to death. He tells him to preserve this writing, presumably referring to the Testament itself, although perhaps the Torah in general, and hide them respectively in a place designated by God. This may be to establish the text and other parabiblical works' authority as a hidden work by Moshe only later rediscovered, much like for Ezra's discussion of the hidden 70 books but it could also be an explanation for the narrative of the discovery of the Book of Law in the temple during Yehoshiahu's reign. Most of the rest of the book takes a structure similar to many apocalyptic and testament works from the Second Temple period, going through biblical and historical events in metaphorical terms and concluding with predictions about the eschaton, the end of the world. Because this material is essentially just a summary of the biblical narrative and then some of the Second Temple period history until the eschatological section, I will summarize it more quickly. 
Moshe tells Yoshua that he will lead the people into the land of Israel and establish the tribes as a kingdom, although this is anachronistic. The tribes will separate, and ten will form their own kingdom with their own temple. Even the Jerusalem temple will begin to be defiled by pagan sacrifice. A king from the east will subdue them, and they will lament their sinfulness. One of their own leaders, presumably a reference to Ezra or Daniel, will turn to God and pray on behalf of them and the exiles, restoring the faith of the two tribes and allowing the other ten to grow throughout the lands of other nations. This focus on the fate of the other ten tribes reflects a growing interest in the somewhat anachronistic idea of the ten lost tribes that will become more popular in both Judaism and Christianity. The people will, however, once again go astray, following foreign gods, judging unjustly, and corrupting the temple. These accusations are likely in reference to the Sadducees and the Hasmonean kings, who are viewed as engaging in all of these evils. They will then be killed by an unrighteous king of another family, who will rule for years in tyranny. This refers to Herod, who succeeded and killed the last of the Hasmonean dynasty. He is succeeded by his descent, and afterwards a foreign, western power will gain control of Judea. This, of course, refers to the Herodian dynasty and the Roman emperor. Although, it's worth noting that this is not accurate to historical events, as the Roman Empire actually gained control in Judea during the end of the Hasmonean period, not the Herodian period. At this point, the author has presumably reached history up to his own time period, and so adds a description of the end of the world which was viewed as imminent. The religious leadership will be full of rich gluttons while the poor suffer, likely once again in allusion to the Sadducees. These leaders will be punished in many ways, describing the practices of the Romans, which will cause them to abandon their faith even further. The text then, somewhat abruptly, switches to a narrative about a levy named Taxo, who explains God's justice to his seven sons and urges them to flee into a cave and die there rather than submit to the wickedness. This narrative, which may have been inserted later or from an earlier work quoted here, shares similarity to the story in the book of Maccabees about Jews who flee to the caves but are killed because they refuse to fight the Seleucids on Sabbath, and to the rabbinic narrative of the martyr Hannah and her seven sons, also set during the Maccabean period. And it may well be an otherwise unattested to middle stage of the development of these two stories. Additionally, it bears similarity to many other cave-related narratives, including Choniame Agel, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and the seven sleepers in Christianity and Islam. The final chapter of this prediction of the future, detailing the judgment, is given in a more poetic verse, like many other apocalyptic works, notably the Enoch literature. A messenger will establish God's kingdom and drive off the Satan and wickedness. This reference to the Satan, absent throughout the rest of the text, may suggest that this poem, like the Taxo narrative, was originally separate or was added in later and God will return to the earth, causing chaos in the celestial bodies and land features. Israel will be rewarded and brought over its enemies. There seems to be a pun here, wherein the imagery of returning on the backs of eagles, a reference to a prophecy from the book of Yeshayahu, Isaiah, is likened to the Judean triumph of Rome, which is represented by an eagle. This wordplay and other phrases in this poem seem to suggest a more Semitic origin, once again providing evidence that this poem was originally a separate 
and perhaps more anokic composition. Finally, Moshe urges Yoshua to be strong and lead Israel, so that these things may come to pass as he has described. Hearing all of this, Yoshua begins to cry and Moshe consoles him. At this point, the extant text approaches its end and gets even more fragmentary, so everything from this point on is slightly reconstruction. Yoshua does not think he can be a leader to the Israelites as Moshe was, and worries that he will not be able to provide for them, lead them militarily, and judge fairly between them. Moshe gives a long speech urging Yoshua not to worry, as the sequence of events has already been determined by God, although it is cut off where the manuscript ends. This theme suggests that the text was addressed specifically to an audience in bad circumstances and in distress. It is possible that the missing part of this document included the death and burial narrative that is associated with what I will discuss next, the Assumption of Moses, but it is more likely that this narrative was its own separate work. The Assumption itself is lost, but there are very many quotations, summaries, and references to other works that have survived that allow a reconstruction of what the work probably entailed, or at least a specific episode within it. Either the work itself, or the part that is attested to, begins with Yoshua and Caleb, Caleb witnessing Moshe's death on Har Nebo, after which the Satan tries to steal the body and make the Israelites worship it as a god. A few angels, including Michael, are sent to stop the Satan and bury the body properly. The Satan makes the case that because the body is made of physical matter, it belongs to him. This association of the material with evil suggests a dualistic or perhaps proto-dualistic approach. Michael counters and argues that all of man was created through God's spirit, and so the body belongs to God, possibly further stating that it was only due to the Satan's intervention as the snake that man is earthly and sinful at all. The idea that the serpent is the Satan would be go on to become more popular, especially in Christian works. The Satan accuses Moshe of being a murderer for killing the Egyptian, and God for not making good on his promise to keep Moshe from entering the land, as further evidence as to why he should have the body. Michael, instead of arguing further, appeals to God to rebuke the Satan instead. In response, lightning comes forth from the heavens and the Satan flees. Yoshua and Kalev are then brought into the air to see a vision of angels burying Moshe's earthly body in the ground and lifting a second body into heaven. These two Moshe's, one buried in the ground and one brought to heaven, once again show an association with dualistic ideas. Yoshua hears Moshe receive the new name of Melchi in heaven, similar to traditions of Hanoch receiving the name Mitatron at his assumption, and other narratives of biblical figures receiving new and holy names. Yoshua descends with Kalev and tells the people all that he saw. These two, or possibly one text, contribute greatly to our understanding of the figure of Moshe during the Second Temple period, while figures like Hanoch and Ezra are generally more popular among apocalyptic authors, these narratives show that Moshe was also a figure of interest in those circles. It is also an important piece in the development of the Second Temple sects into a number of the more mystical Jewish and Christian sects that followed the Temple's destruction. Additionally, it serves as a bridge between the more apocalyptic imagery texts found earlier on and the more romantic, miraculous texts 
found more commonly in late antiquity works by groups such as the dualistic Gnostics. And so concludes this episode of Parabiblica for the Perplexed. If you enjoyed it, please refer this episode to a friend or a colleague who might find it interesting. And join us next month for Parabiblica for the Perplexed, Sibylline Oracles. <laughs>